All right. We're going to be taking up the second part of our three-part series on Abraham. You probably know we're going through Hebrews 11, trying to go as basically as much as we can person by person. But Abraham has more written about him in Hebrews 11 than anybody else in that chapter. We call it the, uh, the Hall of Heroes or the chapter of heroes of the faith. And uh, more is said about Abraham than anyone else. In fact, so much is said about him that, as you know, I've chosen to break it into three parts. The first part was uh, Abraham as a person. We saw that the last time I teached. Uh, uh, last, <laughs> the last time I taught. Man. Uh, and uh, today we're going to take Abraham as a partner. And we're going to look at his multiple marriage situation. Then the next time we're going to look at Abraham as a parent. And we're going to see his sons. And uh, we're going to see the turmoil that came about and how Galatians, uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, writing the book of Galatians, uses the two sons of Abraham as an illustration of the two covenants. Now, I'm going to say this to you. The next time I teach, which is whatever the date is, sometime in June, uh, in Steve's absence, I'm going to be dealing with probably the most significant subject that I personally have learned about over the past 25 years. And that is the uniqueness of the two covenants that God had with Israel and now God has with the new Israel, who, whom I believe to be the Lord Jesus. But we're going to be showing the two covenants as expressed and exposed in the book of Galatians. That's in our next time. But today, we're going to look at his uh, multiple marriage situation. I don't know how much inspiration we're going to get out of it, but we're, we're going to try. All right? So first of all, Steve, if you would read, uh, you see on your paper, Genesis 16, 1 to 3, he's going to read that, but he's going to read from Hebrews first. So listen to Hebrews 11, and then he'll go to Genesis chapter 16. By faith Abraham, even though he was past age, and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the, on the seashore. Now Sarah, Abraham's, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build family through her. Abram agreed to do what Sarah said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan for ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. All right. How do you like a Sunday school lesson opening with the reading of a guy with three wives, uh, multiple reasons for having the wives, and uh, trying to learn something of spiritual nature for us? I mean, it's quite a, quite a, a job, I can tell you. In fact, I have chuckled more uh, as I... Uh, did my studying for this 
particular uh, lesson than any other lesson that I've done. I just found myself laughing sometimes. And I'm not sure that's the proper response, but I did. And uh, so anyway, we're going to look at Abram, the partner. And the question is, who's your wife? Now, that's a good question for Abraham because we're going to be introduced to several people here. Now, last time, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we looked at Abraham, the person. We looked at the fact that he was chosen, that God selected or elected him out of all the people there of the Chaldees. And when God does something in somebody's life that either brings salvation and then whatever else he brings, he begins with the fact that he's chosen them. Now, we don't understand that. And we all do understand that we have to say yes to the invitation to come to Christ. There's no doubt about that. But the fact is, the scripture declares we have been chosen. And then it says, uh, whom he chooses, he called. And that was true of Abraham. He had chosen him and he called him. We don't know how he appeared to Abraham in the era of the Chaldees. Could have been a burning bush like Moses. Could have been a still small voice like Elijah. It could have been any uh, way that God determined he wanted to get Abraham's attention, but he got it. And he called him to leave the Ur of the Chaldees, take his family and go. Now he wasn't going to tell him where he was going, but he was going to show him along the way how it would be done. And Abraham was uh, chosen and he was called. And the third thing we looked at is he complied. And by the way, that's the way it always is with our salvation. We were chosen, we're called, you call it conviction, however you want to call it. Think of the time you first understood. In fact, Joe was telling me a while ago about uh, June the 6th is your spirit. June the 8th is his spiritual birthday. And he was telling me about that day when he realized his need of Christ. Well, uh, that's what we think of when we were called and came to know the, uh, the Lord. And uh, then we complied. There was a moment when we said, yes, Lord. I open my life to you. I'm trusting you alone. Now, how does that work with his, his election, our having to be free to choose? I'm not fully sure I could ever explain it. And the reason, because I'm not fully sure I could ever understand it. And how do you explain something you don't understand? So I'm just going to stand on the testimony of the scripture that that's the way salvation works. Can we all agree on that? All right, then we come today uh, to Abraham as a partner, or as the question is, who's your wife? Now, this guy was a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I mean, he started out with Sarah, and he moved a couple of other times in a marriage, but we'll start with the first one with Sarah. Uh, he was married three different women, uh, at three different times for three different reasons that we're going to look at this morning. And one of my chuckles as I was preparing all this is when I realized that today, talking about his marriages, today we're celebrating our 64th wedding anniversary. Now, she, she didn't have the opportunity to get three husbands or something like that. But anyway, uh, we've stuck it out and... Uh, so anyway, I just had a big laugh about the fact that here I am talking about his marriages on the day that uh, we've been married for so long. 
but anyway, I just thought you might enjoy knowing about that. We're going to look first of all at Sarah, and I'm calling her the wife of promise. Now, the reason I'm doing that is because when God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, he was already a married man. Now, that was different than with us uh, because I got my call to preach, quote, my call out of whatever life was going to be into the ministry full time as it has become before we married. And uh, Abraham was already married to Sarah. In fact, before we married so much so that she wasn't just real sure when the time came that she wanted to. And I told her I was sure enough for both of us, so just forget about it. <laughs> we'll get it done. And uh, she did, and we are. So, uh, but Abraham and Sarah were husband and wife when he was called. God said in Genesis 12, I will make of you, Abraham, a great nation. And then in chapter 13 of Genesis, he said, I will make your descendants, as Steve read it, as the dust of the earth, so that uh, if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then they would be able to count your descendants. Now remember, he's talking to them when she is childless. She's barren. In fact, that's what I say here. She was barren physically. Sarah could not conceive. And yet God was promising, I'm going to make your seed as the sand of the sea, stars of the sky, innumerable. You won't be able to count them. Oh, really? Well, and I got to tell you, this is another one of my chuckles that I had when I was preparing. He was dealing with, she was, Sarah was dealing with a barren situation physically. And that's always a problem. In fact, it was a really sad problem back in that day. It's not that much today. We understand life is more than just having kids, although that's a great blessing. Back then, it was an absolute tragedy. It was even the uh, shame that came upon people. Uh, it was as if God was punishing them if they couldn't have children. Well, it was never true for us. In fact, when we were first married 64 years ago today, Mary over the next two or three years, in my mind, became what I called Myrtle the Fertile Turtle. <laughs> and the reason is because our third was born on our fourth wedding anniversary. Can you believe that? You ask how young we were. We were so young, we didn't quite understand what was happening. I mean, that's Mary pretty young. Well, that's a far cry from where Abraham and Sarah were because she was barren physically. And it was a tragedy in that day, not only spiritually, but nationally uh, when she couldn't have children. And here God was saying, uh, I promise you, you'll have more children come from your loins, Abraham, than you'll be able to count as the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky and so on. Uh, it's interesting to me, and I found this out for the first time. I'd never realized this until this study for this morning. Are you aware of the fact that the three wives of the three greatest men of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were all barren originally? That's interesting to me. 
I don't think I'd ever realized that. Uh, Sarah was barren. Uh, and uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was barren. Rachel, Jacob's wife, was barren. And it was from those three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the entire nation of Israel came into existence. And uh, so, isn't it interesting? It's almost as if God had to, had to supernaturally intervene in order for the nation of Israel to begin. Maybe that's proper since Israel was going to be a special nation for a special need that would ultimately uh, bring about the Messiah for all nations and a new kingdom being established, the kingdom of heaven on earth. And we'll be talking about that when we look at the children. But right now, we're just looking at the fact that uh, Abraham married Sarah and she was not able to have any children. But there was a promise of a blessing given to her uh, in the course of their marriage. Now, uh, 10 years passed. Uh, they'd moved out of the area of the Chaldees to a place called Haran, where they stayed until uh, Abraham's father died, and then they went on, taking Lot, his nephew, with him. But uh, uh, 10 years later, um, still no child. So Sarah began to get rather concerned. And so she made a suggestion. Uh, in fact, it's, it's almost as if Sarah got in her mind that her biological clock was ticking and, and uh, you know, time was going by. I've never really fully understand that. Obviously, I'm not a woman. But, uh, you know, I, I get this mental, this is another place where I laughed when I was studying. I get this picture where somebody said, oh my goodness, I forgot to have kids. You know, that's not how it was with Sarah. She had looked and looked and looked and looked for 10 years, a decade. And God had said, you're going to have many, many, many children. Here she was with no children. Nothing to show for 10 years of life. So what do you do? Well, she made an absolutely understandable human suggestion. She suggested that Abraham take her handmaiden, uh, as his concubine and let her produce children that would by law sit at the knee of Sarah and be as her children because concubines were considered to be property even if they were in a sexual liaison with the, the, the man. They were still the property, particularly the property of Sarah. She was her handmaiden. And so she said uh, to, to uh, Abraham one day, why don't you take Hagar, my Egyptian handmaiden, and let her bear children for us? And maybe that'll help God out. <laughs> okay? I mean, that, that's what was said. Uh, I mean, that was what we thought, whether it was said or not. So she was not only barren physically, she was blinded spiritually. She began to see God as locked within the framework of the only way we understand how things are done. Now, ladies and gentlemen, anytime we lock God in, having to do something the way, the only way we can understand it to be done, we're locking God out of the situation. Because when God does something in the human realm, 
It is generally exactly the opposite of how we would have thought he would do it. And that's been true every step of my walk with the Lord. I've learned that how I thought he would do something when I thought he was moving me to do something like moving into the ministry or moving to a church or whatever. I envisioned what he was doing by it, what he would achieve with it. And it never, I mean literally never, ever turned out the way I expected. God doesn't operate within the framework of human understanding in order to perform his purposes for eternity. And ladies and gentlemen, that's one of the hardest lessons for me personally, so I'm assuming it's hard for you too. It's been one of the hardest lessons for me to learn is that, you know, like when we started traveling after I pastored for 40 years, we started traveling 26 years ago in ministry, revivals, pastors and wives conferences. Well, how am I going to be provided for? I have no exact income. I have no specified church salary coming to me. And so I began to think how God would uh, provide for me, began to uh, look at how I could get this person maybe interested or that person may be interested. And I knew some people who might be, want to be. And so I, with all the zeal that I could muster, uh, I try to get people behind Vital Truth Ministry and all that kind of thing. And you know what I discovered? The people I thought would jump in head first never really jumped in much. And people that I had no concept that they would ever be a part of it would come, would come with some miraculous thing. For instance, no names just to illustrate this. Early in our traveling ministry, I was at a church and it was a, uh, you know, I don't mean church. I, uh, I was at a church where a man uh, came to know the Lord and he met a girl and they were going to marry. I helped them out. Uh, they weren't sure because they'd faced some difficulties and so on. I counseled them. I became something of a mentor to them. They loved us. So when they decided to marry, they came to Oklahoma City so I could do it. I talked with them and uh, we looked at what they faced. I performed the ceremony. They got married. They lived in difficulty. Never had any money, never had any. And I wasn't sure the marriage was going to make it. We prayed for them through the years, hoping, well, it has. It has. In fact, uh, he uh, became, he just had one, had oil, one oil well discovery and started a little company. He wound up being the single person who supported Vital Truth Ministry financially more than anybody I knew. And I, when I knew him, he didn't even, I mean, he was the last person I would have thought would have helped. And so when Rebecca, uh, when, uh, I'm sorry, when Sarah decided she needed to help God out, here's Hagar, she said, my handmaid, take her. And so she was blinded spiritually, like most of us are when we think about God doing things that we don't understand. Now, that brings us to the second wife, and that's the wife of permission. The first one's the wife of promise. That's Sarah. This is Hagar, the wife of permission. Now, I want to read to you what was said about concubines. Listen to this. Uh, having concubines, which means a sexual partner with uh, 
a slave, and men of that day were able to do that. Uh, and in Baker's Encyclopedia of the Bible, Baker says this, having concubines was practiced in many ancient cultures, especially in Mesopotamia. And remember, that's where the Ur of the Chaldee, where Abraham came out of. Uh, a concubine was often a slave and part of the booty of war. But Hagar was a slave, not necessarily of war. She was an Egyptian. And uh, there was a need for a child. And so she was uh, decided or permitted to be the one who would bear children. And that was the way they looked upon it. We'll look, upon, we'll look at this thing of how ethical that is from our perspective in a moment. But right now we're talking about their culture, their ancient culture, and that's where they lived in. And so uh, she was a concubine. She became a secondary wife. Never the same status as Sarah. She never lost her uh, handmaiden position to Sarah, although she did have a child. Okay? And Ishmael was born. Now, uh, to top it all off, 13 years after Ishmael was born by Hagar, okay? Sarah conceived. Three guys came to talk to them, angels in human form. Uh, and uh, they announced again to Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a child. And Sarah was hearing outside. She laughed. Well, I, this was 13 years, 12 years after she'd given Hagar to her husband. And so that means there had already been nearly 25 years go by that she'd had no children since God had promised it. You see, God's never in a hurry. Nine months later, Isaac was born. Isaac means laughter. And the reason they named him Isaac was because she had laughed about it. You see? And so uh, Hagar uh, became uh, the wife of permission. So she conceived and Ishmael was born. And then at age 127, three years uh, uh, after, uh, well, well, let me back up a little bit. Uh, <clears throat> this problem that existed between Sarah and Hagar was not helped by the fact that when Isaac was born, just a few months after his birth, uh, Ishmael was found to be mocking him. Now, it had to be something that was just pretty rough because it disturbed Sarah. She went to Abraham and said, this is not right. Let's get rid of her. So they cast her and her child, Abraham's boy, Ishmael, cast him out of the household. And he was gone. She was gone. So here it is, Abraham, Isaac, and Sarah. And the years go by. Sarah dies. And... Uh, Three years after Sarah dies, Abraham marries a woman by the name of Keturah. And I call her the wife of pleasure. So I'm assuming in order to keep his feet warm. You know, he was an old man now, and so he married the third time for pleasure. First time promise, second time permission, third time pleasure. At 
pleasure turned to passion because she bore in six kids. Okay? And her name is Keturah. Now, um, there are two things we need to understand about his marriage to Keturah. First of all, exactly who is Keturah? Some people believe that she is Hagar. In other words, years ago, a Jewish rabbi came up with the idea that this woman is the same woman who was the Egyptian handmaiden just years later, and now she becomes the wife of Abraham uh, in a little more of a legitimate fashion, although she too was a concubine, honestly, but not at least Sarah's handmaiden because Sarah was now dead. So this Jewish rabbi said, and he showed the historical reasons he said it, that Keturah was the same person as Hagar. Now, um, the story goes, the rabbi's teaching goes, that uh, Isaac was the found, uh, one who went to find Keturah, Hagar, and bring her back. She was his stepmother after all, and so bring her back to his father after his mother Sarah had died. And so that's this rabbi's uh, teaching, that she was the same person as Keturah. Some Bible scholars have picked up on that, okay? Although uh, I'm not sure that that's the best way to view it. In fact, that's a, uh, yes. Well, I tell you what, let me finish this thought and then we'll get to some questions, okay? Uh, because there's a second thought about Keturah, who she is, and that is that she is a totally different person, a totally separate person. Keturah is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. And one time she's called a concubine, the other time she is called his wife. So we know that she was both a concubine and a wife, but the second position is she was a third person different from the one called Hagar. Now, I'll give you what I think about it after we have this question. Yes? I just want to know where it is written and explained in any way about Keturah. I'm sorry? I, I just want to know where exactly anything is explained or, or said about Keturah. Oh, uh, you'll have to, it's all in my research on some Jewish rabbi. I don't even write down where I find it. She, uh, okay. Keturah's only mentioned twice. Okay. And uh, nothing is ever said about it. We don't know where she came from. We don't know any of that. Some of the Jewish historians give us some background. But I'm sorry, most of that's just from the research that I sat. And as I would sit and research and study, I'd laugh a lot on this one because it seemed kind of curious to me anyway, kind of fun to me, to me anyway. So what do I think? Uh, nobody can be sure, but I lean toward her being a third person, not the same as Hagar. I see her as a third wife. And by the way, uh, uh, she bore him, as I said already, six different children. Now, I'm not going to spend my time tracing the lineage of those boys and helping you, you know, understand uh, Ishmael's lineage. We'll talk about that later. But, or, or even uh, the lineage of the six sons of Keturah. We'll leave that for some other time. Some other Bible teachers far better than I am. But what I want to talk to you about is, does the fact that Abraham had three wives 
prove that God condones polygamy. That's where I'm coming to in this whole uh, study with you this morning. Does the experience of Abraham prove that it's okay from God's perspective for people to have multiple wives, that polygamy <coughs> is, all, uh, is all right? Now, my unequivocal answer is no. It doesn't mean that Abraham should have or that we're free to. In fact, um, God's pattern for marriage has always been a monogamous union between male and female, two human beings. That's the biblical standard for a marriage. I won't, a lot of issues about how society views it, all that kind of stuff. I won't worry about that. We can talk about that, all the nuances. But the biblical standard from the very beginning in Genesis was one monogamous relationship between male and female. Okay? That's the biblical definition of what marriage is, about, uh, is all about. Now, then why does the Bible record that Abraham had three wives? In fact, why does the Bible record that uh, King David committed adultery? Come to think of it, why does the Bible record the fact that Peter denied Jesus? You know, it looks to me like if you want to encourage people with the truth of revelation, uh, might ought to leave out some of those issues and some of those happenings and so on. Well, the exact opposite is true as far as I'm concerned. The reason I can depend on the veracity and the truthfulness of the text of the scripture for a lot of other reasons too, but is one of the reasons is because it honestly tells you the picture of the behavior and the lives the strengths and the weaknesses of the men and the women about whom it is written. And that's just the way God does things. So, um, I think we're making a mistake. Now, again, I don't want to get political here. And this is another one of those chuckle moments for me when I was studying. Because if we were to do with the scripture what people are doing today in our culture and our society, we would be rewriting it and we would be condemning all of these people for how they acted and removing their names from any of our literature and we'll be having nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, I just don't think you really accomplish anything by rewriting history. I think it's a whole lot better to honestly uh, relate and teach and show and talk about what honestly happened and why it was honestly wrong. But you can't, in my judgment, now I'm only giving my personal opinion, you can't really do much good by rewriting history and removing all uh, vestige of their failures or how bad they were, so we want nothing to do with them. Ladies and gentlemen, let's learn from our poor examples. Let's learn from our failures. 
And so I think we can learn from Abraham's problems with the three women he married, knowing it was not God's purpose that marriage be uh, polygamous, but um, it was to be monogamous, whatever the word is. It's monosyllable. You know what I'm saying. It's only one, however you say that. The, and and we'll, we'll learn from it, all right? Now then that brings us to what have we learned? Well, why did God allow it? Some people say, now this is one reason some people say God allowed polygamy uh, with Abraham, is because he wanted to spread the human race all across the globe, and he wanted the, this is after the flood, all across the globe, and so he allowed this to happen in order to fulfill what his purpose was to bring the human race at more quickly, filling, you know, and so on and so forth. The only problem with that is I don't agree with it. Because if I understand scripture, the end never justifies the means. I'm convinced with all of my heart that God is as concerned about the means of how something is done as he is whether or not it's done. I think Moses is a perfect example of that. Man, he was going to be the deliverer of Israel out of Egyptian bondage, and he'd been taught that from, the, uh, from when he was raised by his mother, found in the bulrushes. His mother was brought in to nurse him. They didn't know she was his biological mother. And she raised him knowing who he was in the purposes of God. Well, if he's the deliverer of Israel, then let's get busy delivering. And so he kills an Egyptian. And it doesn't even set well with the Hebrews. He winds up burying the guy, fearing in his own life. He fled 40 years later. In the, in the desert of Midian, Moses is approached by God again in the fiery bush and said, okay, now you're ready. Let's go back to Egypt and you're going to be their deliverer. Why did all that happen? Because God is as concerned with the means, the method, as he is the end result. The end never justifies the means from God's perspective, if I understand how God reveals himself in the scripture. And so I don't hold that the reason God permitted it was so man would be able to replenish the earth, which he wanted done anyway. I just don't think that. I think God takes the message we make and he does something more positive than we ever dreamed out of them. And that was true for Ishmael. That was true for all these guys, but it was never to fulfill his original purpose for anything, because that means the end would justify the means, and that's never true from the scripture. Well, then why, is there a good reason why polygamy was permitted, looked at, not corrected altogether, although in Leviticus it is corrected and even forbidden for the nation of Israel. But right here, it wasn't, it, because in this culture, they held to it, and God never intended for it to be held to. It's a little bit like slavery in the New Testament. Some people say the New Testament teaches slavery. They're the same people that say the Old Testament teaches God wants polygamy. No, no. The New Testament doesn't 
teach that slavery is correct. It's wrong. It's unethical. It is a violation of God's purposes, but it doesn't always correct a society in the moment of time. He didn't in the moment of the New Testament. He didn't in the moment of the Old Testament with Abraham and Hagar and uh, Keturah and so on. But the fact is, what God is doing is he took the wrong thing done and provided a good thing out of it. What came good? What, what good, thing came, good thing came out of it? Do you realize that in that day, a concubine who bore children to her husband was a piece of property. And were, it not, were she not to be viewed as a wife, there was no place for her to be, no place for her to go. She was the outcast of society totally. And so what God did was took a bad thing and brought something good out of it in the lives of those to whom it happened. And that's the way God generally works. In the New Covenant, it's said this way. He takes all, even the bad things that happen, not that he ordered it, he takes them and he works for our good, the things that come about that our messes make. Does that make sense? And I think that's what God has done. So that slavery of the New Testament is removed in kingdom living. Polygamy in the Old Testament is removed in kingdom living in the New Covenant in the New Testament era. And in eternity, marriage will be removed. It's a human institution, not a divine, ultimate, heavenly institution. And uh, so those are the purposes of God that I see in this three. So um, the New Testament uh, clearly specifies that God's purpose and intent for marriage is to be the union of one man, one woman, uh, as Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 3, and Titus 1 all say. Now, I'm going to end it there. So much more we could talk about. But I wasn't even sure I could make it interesting enough for 30 minutes. So I'm hoping it was. All right? I've always wondered why... Um, Abraham is always credited as being faithful, but in fact, yeah, actually, uh, well, Abraham was a weak, weak-willed person in some way. She took the suggestion about Hagar, and Sarah laughed. Abraham didn't laugh, so he was counted as the faithful one, and she was. They even named uh, Isaac laughter, but Abraham was viewed as being faithful, believing God's promise. But it was more than just children for Abraham. It was that he was to uh, leave the land and looking for a heavenly city. And he never saw that until, of course, uh, because it's an eternal promise. So it was really more of a promise, more than just kids for Abraham more than just kid. And that's why he was seen to be the faithful one to the full promise. And Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations? I'm sorry? Ishmael is the father of the Arab nations? Yes. yes. Now, we're, I'm going to get into that in our next study. But yes. And the turmoil that has resulted since. Okay? So we're still with Abraham. The guy is a case. History. We've looked at him, you know, as a person. We've looked at him as a partner. Next time we'll look at him as a parent. And my goodness, he didn't do any better as a parent. 
you know. So he's the father of the nation. He's the father of the spiritual nation that became, you know, in other words, the, Jesus is the new Israel. But our past is not too swift. Boy, if it weren't for God working, we'd be in a mess. And I'm wearing the shirt of the nation that I love, and I almost want to say this to the nation that I love. We've got to be careful. It takes God to clear up the messes that we make. You know? And, uh, but they're not listening to me. So you, you did listen to me, and I thank you for that. All right. God bless you. We're ending on time. Have a great weekend. See you next time.